Welcome to Are You Real? Finding the Authentic You, the podcast that focuses on Christians that are active in everyday life. Join in as we speak to everyone from successful business owners to educators to athletes about their faith and how it helps them reach out and revolutionize those around them to do the same. And now get ready to roar with your host, the voice of manifestation, John Fuller. Hey, Roar Nation, John Fuller here and fired up for today's interview. If you have followed me for any short period or long period at all, you know that on intros, I have a knack of hacking them. So that being said, we're going to give it a shot anyway, but I am really excited. This interview has been talked about in the process for almost a year. And, uh, but that being said, I'm, uh, I'm going to jump into it. Uh, Malcolm, you ready to roar, my friend? I am, John. It's good to, good to join in. Yes. Okay. So Roar Nation, check this out. It's a long bio. Hold on with me because Malcolm has done a lot. <laughs> okay. So Malcolm has straddled the worlds of the prophetic Christianity in showbiz for over 30 years, ranging from church planner to record company executive, from songwriter to song publisher, from instigator of multicultural, multilingual worship that is fused praise and protest in the era of his native South Africa to artist manager in that same context. From consulting ministries, movements, artists, songwriters, record labels, publishing companies in the Christian arena, and he's helped nurtured top 40 songwriters in the mainstream. He continues to consult for a range of organizations, yet identifies primarily as an underground activist and as a father figure to a growing number of young leaders. One of his priorities is his relentlessness call for the decolonization of the worship movement and for the doors of dignity to be unlocked for more communities and ethnicities to contribute toward the common hymnal. That was right. a mouthful. <laughs> Dude, and I did it, Malcolm. I felt like I didn't totally blow it. <laughs> Wonderful. I feel good about this, man. <laughs> the only All problem right. is I haven't been doing it for 30 years. It's more like 40 years. So um, it's a little outdated. So we're close. I mean, <laughs> it's just a decade. What I mean... <laughs> A little bit happens in a decade, right? <laughs> All right. So, Malcolm, that is – obviously, that's a lot. I want to – I want you to give me kind of like a high-level view of just kind of like what you're doing right now. But then after that, we're going to back up literally 40 years okay. of kind of how it all started. But kind of tell me a little bit or my listeners kind of what you're doing right now in the middle of. John, you, have not, you and I have connected because we have an interest in nurturing emerging leaders. And I, I'm Forrest Gump. I have a very, very complicated, abstract, uh, random life in which I do a bunch of stuff. I, I really I work in music business and have, for the 26 years that I've lived in America, mostly consulting record companies, um, et cetera. But the thing that I'm the most passionate about and the thing that you and I have talked about is um, my common hymnal endeavor, which is, essentially an un, is, which is essentially a very pedantic, very careful, very slow project, which I've been working on for the last five or six years, which is an online library for what seems to be the future of what's going what's gonna to happen in Christianity in the world. More specifically, 
I read the stats on the Bonner Report in, 19, in 2017, 50% of millennials that grew up in church had checked out of church. Wow. I read the same report one year later, 2018, and that number jumped from 50% to 59%. Our world is changing. Christianity is changing. Christianity is in somewhat of a crisis, and young people are, are checking out. Some because they have a real crisis of faith, but many are not actually having a crisis of faith. Many are, are vital, are spiritually vital, but they're just not identifying with old systems that they've grown up in, and they're wanting to innovate. And so Common Hymnal is an initiative that I've instigated, which is basically aggregating creatives and their creativity from what we all call the spiritual underground, the sort of like the margins, the fringes, the, the millennials, the Gen Z who are innovating outside of the structures that I've grown up in and, and are, are not comfortable with the songs and the, and the ideas that the parents had, and they basically are, um, are, are pumping into the atmosphere a whole wad of new creativity. Nice. All right. So that's a lot to unpack. So <laughs> let's, uh, I want to go back to early history. Okay. How did you get into music? So um, our listeners don't, well, you said for the last 26 years you've been here, but you came from South Africa, correct? Mm, correct. So why don't you jump into kind of how you got into music in the start of following your passion? I didn't go up in a Christian home. My dad was in, was, a, was in horse racing and gambling. And so I'm the first believer in my family. My dad was my first convert ever. And um, I had no uh, Christianity in my upbringing. So I, I found my way into a, what was quite a fringe community when I, when I became a believer at age 17. And um, it was definitely the, the Jesus people of white South Africa in its day. And, and that community imploded very shortly after I became a part of it. And the old people had issues and the young people couldn't figure out what the problems were. And the young people decided to, to make a fresh start. And so we actually began in a, a new community in 1983. And I was very much part of the inner core of, of that community. And I, I, I was 23 but I was, an, I was a pastor slash elder slash leader in this community. But I also um, was the worship leader. And um, I, I've been, since my very early years of, of being a Christian, I've been somewhat of an intuitive of a prophetic animal. And that, so my, one of my first drives in life was, if God is real in our context, a culture which has a national inferiority complex. I live in America, and America generally has a superiority complex. It feels very comfortable about its place in the world. I grew up in a culture that didn't feel comfortable. We felt we were the, we knew our systems were wrong. We knew we did bad stuff, and we felt lesser. And so, therefore, when it came to music and Christianity, we never wrote our own songs because we didn't think we were good at it. So we adopted, we, we went and searched and, and, and sort of did detective work and found out what people were doing in America, and then we sang those songs. And so as a young person who was, who was you know, somewhat musical, I instigated, if God is real with us, let's write our own songs. 
even if they're really yeah. useless, let's let's have our own language. Let's let's talk about the reality of God in our circumstance. And that was my pioneering point. And I'm still pretty much there 40 years later. I'm still pretty much saying, what are we singing? What are we doing? And I'm an activist for the integrity and the the um, intelligence of what we sing. So that that was my entry point. That's my my current point is just when we when we when we embrace music in our faith why and how and and how do we do it well and how does it not become a cliche and how does it not not, not become trite and how does it not become a, a, a meaningless repetition how do we keep it vital and real and vibrant and something that's actually catalytic and life transformative okay so at 23ish you mm-hmm. become leader slash elder doing music yes. and uh as you spurred on and like you you felt like hey we're gonna we're gonna write our own music and do our own stuff what was like the outcome of that or the process what ended up developing from that and i like that and i like that because in the sense that you were saying hey god created us to be us uh-huh. we don't have to do what other people are doing let's just do what god's saying for us and you Correct. did so we, so we started writing. We didn't make waves. We didn't change the history of the world. But our song spread. And as a young person, I visited the island of Penang off Malaysia. Um, and I had an experience one day when I was exhausted after a trip speaking in these different churches. And I was asked to meet the American missionaries at the Bible college. And I was exhausted and told my friends, I, I, please, if I don't have to go, I'm, I'm tired. I just want to go to my plane. I'm, I can't even think straight. And they were quite forceful and said, no, you need to meet the Americans. So I did. And I walked into the room as a young white South African who had no sense of songs making an impact anywhere. And my friends introduced me by name. And as they mentioned my name, this lovely old couple in their 70s fell to their feet, fell at my feet and started crying and hugging me and just saying, thank you, Jesus. Thank you, God. And weeping profusely. So I'm thinking... These are weirdos, and I don't, want to yeah. get, I don't want to be here, and I don't want them falling at my feet. But once they'd recovered, they stood up and told me that they had been through a really bad experience when they were in the mission field, I think in Thailand or somewhere, and they had gone back to Dallas and gone back to a church meeting and sung a song the first weekend they were back, absolutely embarrassed, humiliated, distraught, and confused. And they sang a song that I wrote back in the old days when you had over your head transparencies. And my name was at the bottom of the transparency as the writer, and they sang this song for an hour, evidently. Wow. And it just turned them upside down. They told me the lyrics. They told me the story. And then they said, um, and we made a note of your name, and we prayed every day that God would let us meet you. Well, I'd never heard of the island of Penang before I went there. <laughs> yeah. And um, as I said, I don't, I don't have um, – I've never become some very successful in music but I wrote a song that went somewhere around the world and touched people that were in need of some help. It touched their lives. And supernaturally, I had the chance to go into the office and have them tell me the story. And then, of course, my misery changed to joy. And I just wanted to spend the whole day with them and miss my flight because it was very affirming. And then they said, now you must leave because all we ever asked God to do was to tell you the story. You've got an important life to live. Don't waste any more of your time. Please leave now. And I left <laughs> with a full heart and absolutely knew that songs can actually make an impact and find their way around the world mysteriously. And that's 
that 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 story and those kinds of stories have kept me in the music reality for decades. Wow. That's powerful. I just I just think, you know, what are the odds of you showing up on an island of all places in that? And I just I love that the fact that God our Father gave that to them to really encourage them. That was their prayer in how mm-hmm. God just set up that meeting. Uh, obviously it was encouraging for you, but it also, it, you know, that was a, pr- that was a desire of their heart. Mm-hmm. Well, those kinds of things have propelled me in the, the musical arena with purpose. Okay. So as you further down your road, you're playing music. I'm just curious how you got into now, uh, if if and now, correct me if I'm mistaken. As I kind of flipped through Google and saw some stuff, you've written some songs with. I think I saw Paul Belushi, possibly mm-hmm. or Belush, uh, some other people. How did you start end up getting writing music? Uh, I think I even saw some stuff with Promise Keepers. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Which is interesting because we're kind of getting plugged in with him as well. The new the new founder. Okay. Um, but I'm curious. How did you start? Where did that transition make? Because you just made the comment. You feel like you haven't been successful. Is that right? Or no? Uh-huh. I'm, I'm just Forrest Gump. I, I landed a bunch of them. I got to a bunch of important places by mistake. <laughs> I have the, I, let me call it this way. I have the ministry of accidents. Okay. And <laughs> God divine, God, God divine accident. <laughs> so the, 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 the thing that it's a long story and I, there's no way I can do justice to my, my, it's sort of like incredibly interesting season of my life which is my 20s, but basically, as a leader of a small white church, I, I was propelled out by an, an experience I had with God where I built a, a musical community at age 25 that was multicultural, multi-ethnic, multilingual, that was a fusion of praise and protest. We wrote songs that dealt with the injustice in our country and juxtaposed that against the integrity of the kingdom of God and my multicultural crew had five very interesting years in South Africa's history. We didn't, um, we didn't, as I said, take over the world, but we had unique, really special opportunities time and time again to do relatively important things. And in that season of my life, we traveled the world, we made connections, and the story, the story of what, what I did in my, in my late 20s kind of opened doors for me for the rest of my life. So my, my life in America, working in, in Christian music, etc., in different places, all started. They all had their genesis because I was a person of interest. Many, For example, when my relationship with America began because in the last few years leading up to the release of Nelson Mandela, I became a person of interest in Christianity because I headed up this fairly provocative musical project and so it doesn't matter who it was that would visit our country from America and make questions. What are Christians doing about racism, about apartheid, etc.? They would invariably be given a copy of our CD or told about my project. And so that just opened up doors here. We traveled here. And then ultimately in my life here, the, the people, many of the people for whom I've worked, those relationships began in the late 80s when I had that African, you know, that project. So... Coach McCartney from Promise Keepers wanted to build something that was multicultural and the issue of race in, in American sport was an issue to him. And I had a chance to help um, that organization build multi-ethnic 
bands and, and write songs that dealt with those issues. It was a direct result of of my experiences in my 20s. Hey, Roar Nation. So at the end of every show, I ask my guests, hey, do you have a life hack or something that you feel like that makes life easier? And today I'm going to share one with you that I recently found called Policy Genius. So a friend of mine told me about Policy Genius and I got online and I thought, I wonder how long this is going to take. So I got on there and I got to tell you, I was extremely impressed. So from beginning to start, it took about 10 minutes. Uh, They shot me back multiple quotes uh, that I was really impressed with. And I decided to go through the entire process because I thought if I'm going to share this with Roar Nation and who I feel are family and friends, then I want to make sure the experience was good. So walked through it, uh, filled out the information. And what was really impressive was, is I had to do a medical exam and they even offered to come to my office uh, to make it easier on me. So all said and done, the paperwork at policygenius.com took like maybe 10 minutes uh, then within a couple days, I did my medical exam and everything was taken care of. And also they gave me a caseworker who I was really impressed uh, because they just sent me either a text or an email and it was darn near seamless. So just want to share that with you guys. I'm really impressed with Policy Genius. I hope you guys would go check it out. Uh, if you're looking for even, even home insurance, auto insurance, disability insurance, whatever they have it. But I personally went and got a life insurance policy just to make sure, uh, God forbid, anything happened to me that my family was safe So and that they would be well taken care of. So again, go check it out at policygenius.com. And uh, I would love to hear feedback in your experience. So please either message me um, at john at areyoureal.com uh, or sorry, john at areyoureal.org or also uh, go on our Facebook page and send me a message as well. So anyways, have a great day. Okay, we're going to take a rabbit trail real quick, Malcolm. Mm. There, I did a podcast last week uh with a lady named Leticia I believe uh she's got an organization about being the bridge in uh multicultural stuff okay uh, great story talked a lot about racism and different stuff we had a beautiful talk my question to you then I'm curious because you're doing what you keep talking about multicultural stuff in music do you feel like that's still an issue in music and still an issue today it's, it's becoming a worse issue. It's, it's the issue of the age. Worse? It's becoming, oh, yes. Really? Now, we, we be- could dive two feet into this one, because now I'm really curious. Cool. I, it, my answers will, I have to water them down, because if you really want to know my answers, they'll be un, awkward, awkwardly provocative. Um, we, can have, we can have fun with that. I'm okay with that. If you're okay with it, I'm, I, we can talk about anything. Because, I mean, okay. that's the purpose of the show, about being an honest and real. I mean, here's the okay. thing. I might not agree, or we might agree. Our listeners might not. But the show's about being real and authentic. So I would, I would love to hear your heart. Well, let me start here. Okay. The Great Commission. The mission of Christ is that we will go into the nations of the world and disciple nations in the plural. There's no... There's no reference to discipling individuals. We disciple ethnos, ethnic groups in the plural. And the presumed way that Jesus would send us out would be the Jesus way. The Jesus way of the Sermon on the Mount. The Jesus way of serving rather than being served. The Jesus way of coming from underneath and serving. Tragically, the history of Western Christianity 
is the story of colonization. It's the story of, of the privileged going to whom they perceived as the uncivilized, and they went top down in a condescending way and, and, and used countries like my country for material um, significance, trade and other purposes, and at the same time brought in Christianity uh, mixed with we're going to civilize you, which I'm saying that in quotation marks, right. and we're going we're gonna to bring the gospel to you. As Bishop Tutu said so eloquently from my country, when the white man came from Europe, we had the land and he had the Bible. Then he asked us to pray. But when we opened our eyes, um, they had the land and we had the Bible. Mm. And um, colonization has created havoc in our world. And colonization, the story of colonization is inextricably intertwined with the story of Christianity. I come from a country where white people came fleeing persecution just like they came here and they went to find a new country, a new space, a new freedom, and they met an, a local community who didn't, who didn't want to, they didn't want to, didn't want, they wanted to control the place. And so they decimated the local community and ultimately took the local community captive and took possession of the, of the natural resources that we have in our country, which were first, um, uh, diamonds and then gold and so uh, the europeans came they took control of the possessions and christianity was intermingled with it all the way and, and ultimately uh, uh, a system was developed that was re legislated racism where where a white person had everything but a black person couldn't vote couldn't own property and the list goes on of all the things that could never that could never happen in my country, in your in your country, that happened. Yes, that's what part that's what apartheid is. How did that happen? I'm curious. It, it it was triggered in part by the Second World War. Unlike unlike America, very few countries in the world put Christianity and gun ownership in the same pocket. That's exclusively an American idea. Uh, for the most of the world, Christianity would not be comfortable with weapons of any sort. So that's a, that's a provocative, just a reality of, of, of data around the world. Um, the, our community did not want the black community to go fight in the war. Our, our country was divided. Some of the people of Dutch descent wanted to support Germany in the Second World War. The people of English descent um, wanted to support England. Ultimately, we went and supported England but we didn't want to send the black community because we don't want them to, to learn to use guns. So the white males left the country for six years and the, um, now hold on back up real quick. Why did they, why did the white people not want the black people to, to learn how to use guns? Cause they didn't want them to shoot them back because they had all the guns and they shot them. <laughs> I shouldn't laugh at it, but they, no, that's the truth. That's just the reality <laughs> of it. So when you were checked by a bunch of people that had spears and you've got guns, You've got the upper, you've got right. the advantage. So they don't want, they don't want everybody else getting the weapons. So they made sure that the black community stayed down. But when the white males came back from the Second World War in '45, the country was working fairly well with the black community and the woman running it. And the white men were in a crisis. There was depression and poverty. And so three years after the war, something happened that's not too dissimilar from what's happening in America in the last few years of my time being in America, white males are feeling disenfranchised. 
they felt disenfranchised. And so they formed what was called the Nationalist Party and a plea for, for white identity was very, very important. And the Nationalist Party invented what they called apartheid. It was, it was born in the Bible. They used a, a, a passage of scripture from the, from the book of Acts to justify it, where we actually separated where people could live. And we put people in different neighborhoods, took them away from everything, and basically built, built an, an iniquitous system where if you were black, you had no opportunity. You, you could, it was a curfew. You could not go out at night. Your whole life was controlled, and you you were you were enslaved. So white people country. did this to black people in their own country. Uh huh. That's what colonization wow. is, and it's happened in different ways around the world. And it's my provocative point: is happens in America, but it's a little bit more sophisticated and a little bit more disguised. And white people are unbelievably ignorant. And it's actually one of the tragedies of our time is white privilege and white people's inability to look left and right before they cross the road. Okay, so man, we're going to go all over the place. Okay, so let's jump into, okay, so where am I naive to this? Why am I not seeing this? Or where are people not seeing this? Today, right now, in America. I'm, I'm from a different culture. I grew up okay. in, a, in a culture that was the blend of sophisticated, sophisticated European culture and a very raw, organic um, African culture. So our white culture is, is very different than what happened to white culture in America. It's very in your face. It's very rough. It's very rude. In, in Africa? Yes. Okay, so I want you to differentiate. When you talk about this, tell me the difference between the two because I, I want to hear that so I understand. When, we, when you grow up as a white person in South Africa and you have prejudice against black people, it's out in the open. Okay. When you're a white person in America and you have prejudice against other cultures, you disguise it. Okay. So it's blatant. It's blatant in South Africa. It's, very, it's common. People see it and it's accepted. It's blatant and it's, it's terrible, but we work it out in the public domain. Okay. And it doesn't always get solved, but it's, we know we have issues and we, we either lean into them or we work desperately to change them. But, but I've lived in America for 26 years, and to be honest, it was only two years ago that my neighbor was the first white person in 26 years who actually came to my house and said, I think I, I, think I deal with prejudice. First time in 26 years I've ever heard a white person in America say, I, I think I have a tinge of racial prejudice in me. I'd like to talk about it. And I just said, I am so proud of you. And it was a beautiful conversation because that's the beginning. Honesty is always the beginning of healing. It doesn't matter what the issues are that we're facing. And, uh, okay, so I'm, I'm just curious. Mm-hmm. I know that we're, this show is <laughs> going to be fun, but it's kind of like our conversations <laughs> off air. So you're white and you're uh-huh. from South Africa. Why, why the heart for this? Is what, what has spurred this in you? The, the injustice that you've seen? I mean, why come out so like last week i talked to Leticia uh latasha mm-hmm. and she's a black lady in america so i mean obviously most people would say well that makes sense mm-hmm. had to deal with it why have you taken this on december 1984 i'm a 24 year old white south african i'm driving in my car i'm picking up some people from the airport 
I don't know that I was praying or what I was doing. I was just on my way to pick up some friends from England. And I probably had eight times in my life where this happened to me in this way, God spoke to me. I'm not just saying to the chatter, like, you know, something random and, and nice. This was a, 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 an encounter with God. And I felt God speak to me in one sentence. Call the church to fast and pray for 21 days for the country and begin on the 4th of August next year. It was the last thing on my mind. I'm, 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 I'm part of a church. I'm the, one of the second or third eldest, oldest people. I'm 24. A whole bunch of kids don't want to go fasting for 21 days. Yeah. Long story short, we did. And between December 1984 and the 4th of August 1985 was the third year in our country's history where we had major protests from the black community. 61, 76, and 85 were the three catalytic years that led to the change that we had in our country. And I was absolutely oblivious to all of that, and I never understood why black people were upset because of, this, of the effectiveness of, of white privilege and white propaganda. God speaks to me, and on the 14th day of a 24-day um, fast, we have a six-hour prayer meeting. Parkview Primary School, Glenwood, Durban, South Africa. And when I got home and looked at myself in the mirror, my face was brown because I lay on that school floor, which was filled with kids', kids dirty, muddy feet, and I had mud all over my face. And for six hours, we repented, and we, as a group of exclusively white people, prayed and asked God if he would change our hearts and help us make a difference in our society because between the time that we heard God say fast for the country and we began fasting, our country went up in absolute havoc and the violence that was everywhere in our country arrived on our doorstep that weekend. It was unusual for that to happen. I'm, I'm used to people having words of prophecy because I grew up, my first few years in Christianity were in charismatic Christianity and I'm used to people prophesying about people having sore knees or elbows or stuff like that. I'm not used to someone saying, uh, um, for fast for the country and begin on a certain day. And it'd be the day that our city went up in smoke. There were just riots. It was like the LA riots um, on speed. And it was just chaos in our city. And on the 14th day of that 21-day fast, I had an encounter with God that changed me forever. On the, 20, on the 21st day of that fast, I was late for the meeting. I was reading the book of Isaiah 49. And the last verse I read was verse 6 as I went to the meeting. And I read this. I don't remember exactly, but almost verbatim. It's too small a thing for you, prophesying about Jesus, to be called my servant, to restore only the lust of the house of Israel. But I've called you to be a light to the nations. And then I felt God speak to me again. And I preached this and said what I'm about to say to you. At my church, Sunday, the 1st of September, 1985, I read the verse and I said, guys and girls, God spoke to me last week and I, I want to tell you what he told me. He said, just as it was uneconomical for me to send Jesus to Israel only, but I made the truth of salvation open to all nations, so it is with everything I do. My economy is catalytic. You have just developed a special love for your country, singular, but I don't have a special love for your country. I love the countries, plural. 
your heart is turned upside down and you know you want to make a difference in your country, but in 1990, your country is going to change. And I'm going to scatter this group of people around the world to make a difference in a time of crisis internationally. And then I felt God say, I want you to move to America. You'll live in America when it will be more dangerous to live in America than South Africa. And at, at late, in your old age, I want you to be an encouragement to a younger generation. When America is forced to face its racism head on, it will be a time of international crisis. And I want you to build, I want your experience, because I knew I was about to build this multicultural community. That's what God put in my heart during the past. And I knew it was going to happen. And I thought God say, this is a trial run because I want you to do the same thing again later on in your life when it becomes important for the nations of the world. 1990, I, I, I forgot about that. I preached that it was my plan, and I got involved in my country's history. The government banned the second record that my community made. The government banned it. My phone, my phone was tapped. My mail was open um, for a very long time where I, I, could not, I didn't even get a bank statement without someone opening my mail and then it's been taped back together. And um, because, not, because what you were speaking on? Because, because I was seen as a threat, because I had the power to encourage young white and black people to be happy together instead of be fearful of each other. Okay, so why, why would they want racism? Like, why do they want, why do people want division? Why would they not want you guys to come together and be happy? Honestly, I don't know the answer to that question. Okay. It's the mystery of, of my life, of our lives. Um, for some reason, uh, white culture has had a bit of a head start in some areas in this world and has preferred to have a place of privilege and has kept other people down and doesn't realize how, to the extent that it does it. Uh, I, I don't know how to go into it, but I know it's, because I have lots of friends in black community in America, and they're scared. It's, it's not, if I get pulled over, I got pulled over. I was traveling with a friend last night. We got pulled over, um, not because we were speeding, but there was some precautionary measure in the state of Tennessee, and we got pulled over. Not a minute did we panic or have heart palpitations or wonder if our lives were going to be safe. But I have literally hundreds of very successful, very wealthy, very educated black friends who've told me that the most fearful experience in their life is being pulled over. Still to this day? That's why we have all the violence that we've had in the last few years because um, people have lost their lives when they've been pulled over for their flicker not working. For their, um, yeah, it's, it's serious. But... That's all for this episode of Are You Real? Finding the Authentic You. Be sure to go to areyoureal.org for your free questionnaire to identify your gifts and talents and how you can use them to help people become leaders and catapult them into their destiny to help others become the leaders of tomorrow. We appreciate you spending your time with us and look forward to helping you reach out and revolutionize next time on Are You Real? Finding the Authentic You.